Archimedes podcast of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. In this podcast, we will cover the highs and the lows of evidence-based practice across three or four centuries. No, we won't. What we'll do is, is we'll review a couple of cases where some clinicians have had a patient or a series of patients and they've thought, oh, that's interesting. They've taken a fictionalised version of that and they've turned it into a clinical question. They've gone away and they've searched for the evidence amongst electronic databases and sometimes beyond. They've got what is the best quality evidence that they can find. They've appraised it, they've weighed it for its strengths and its weaknesses, and then they've synthesised it all, brought it together to give an answer to the question that they posed. And that's the process of evidence-based medicine in its sort of fullest form. You might use a guideline every day, and that's doing evidence-based medicine. You might just do what your evidence-based seniors told you to do. And that, in a way, is evidence-based medicine. But if you hit that spot of not really being sure what's happening and wanting to get to the bottom of it, then an Archimedes is for you. And maybe, if there isn't one out there, you can be the person that writes it. We'll also start by having a little bit of a think about the processes of EBM and what some of that stuff in critical appraisal, searching and application means. The premise of the evidence-based medicine approach, as we've talked about, is to ask a focused clinical question, a patient intervention comparison outcome, a PICO question. Now, this is great if you are in a situation where you assume you know what might be reasonable interventions and which the comparisons might be, but then there's challenges facing us when we don't know what we don't know and we're not aware of things that are out there that might be in place to improve things. How do we know what we don't know? Well, I think the first thing to do is acknowledge the joy of our colleagues. It's not infrequently that it's conversations with folk from different places or from different specialties that makes us aware of our ignorance. Whilst it's not very 2020 or even 2021 to bump into people and natter over a coffee or maybe even a beer, there are perhaps greater opportunities to meet in broader virtual team gatherings. And second, there's the very traditional approach of scouring the journals that pop out research in your area or areas that you're interested in, and that is to be heavily recommended. You can get them in a variety of ways. You can wait for them to arrive through your letterbox, or you could get emails sent to you with their table of contents if you're quite old, or or, or go for social media, or maybe even listen to podcasts like this for the people that go out on runs and take their dogs for long walks. And the other way of doing it might be to sign up for a sentinel or an alerting service. There's things like um, NIHR updates, there's a, a company that does stuff called Faculty Opinions, and then there's the BMJ one, the Evidence Alert products. These sorts of things uh, go out there and they look for new stuff, they sift it, they appraise it, they comment on it. And, 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 and in a way, that's a way of making you think about how new stuff might be coming along and then integrating that into your research, into your thinking and take it forwards. And finally, and entirely based on self-promotion, you can carry on reading these Archimedes things or you can look at the pickets in the evidence-based section of the Education and Practice Journal. Now, our first clinical query this week comes from the land of neonates. A male infant is born at 39 weeks gestation and it's a spontaneous vaginal delivery 
uneventful pregnancy. Apgar's at 9 at 1 minute and 10 at 5 minutes didn't require resuscitation with those numbers as I'm sure you can imagine was transferred to postnates with the mother at 30 hours of age he started jerking with right arm and left leg and clearly seizing a bedside cranial ultrasound suggested a left middle cerebral artery infarct now coming into this from the land of pediatrics and the frequent use of levetiracetam in pediatric seizures with good effect you wonder should we be using this as a first line in the treatment of neonatal seizures this article is written by sheena Givers, michael boyle and kathleen gorman from the departments of neurology and neonatology in the rotunda hospital in dublin and its associated medical school what the team did is they went away and they searched Medline with an extensive set of words to try and put together neonatology and looking at levetiracetam or Kepra, its trade name, um, seizures, epilepsy, and then the usual stuff as the comparison, uh, phenobarbitone and variants thereof. They went into Cochrane as well. And when they pulled those all together, they looked carefully and found that what they were looking for was only controlled studies. Uh, 347 abstracts were there that were potentially relevant, and only five studies went down to be included in their summary in the end. Now, two of these were randomized controlled trials, and they supplemented that with relatively large retrospective studies to add in extra bits of information and thinking about maybe dosing and differences. The largest of those RCTs was 106 neonates who were diagnosed clinically with seizures and then it was confirmed by EEG. Um, the second largest was only slightly smaller with 100 neonates and these were with clinically diagnosed seizures not requiring EEG to have a look on the far side of it. And they're comparing the two drugs that we're interested in. Now, fascinatingly, dosing of this, as often is the case in neonates, dosing of this is, is sort of plucked from the air and wiggled around a bit and not incredibly straightforward. Um, so even the, the standard treatment of phenobarbitone varies a bit with loading doses and follow-up doses that range between sort of 10 to 20 in the initial loading and then onwards between anywhere between 5 and 35 or more mix per kilo um, apparently as required. Now everybody knows that these are pretty much uh, common occurrences that are unpleasant and we know that they're associated with pretty poor outcomes on the whole. What we think is that by controlling the seizures we can make a, a difference that does improve things in the first line and get some better overall outcomes, although these studies really didn't look at long-term outcomes. They looked at, at seizure freedom and, and keeping you seizure free. Now, what was a bit of a surprise to me, because I work in grown-up children and, uh, and teenagers, was that the, the levetiracetam was not as good. The, the phenobarbitone was actually better than the, uh, than the Kepra was. And putting together the, the two RCTs, and then there's the information that comes a little bit from the retrospective, which does tell you what we already know, really, that phenobarbitone is, uh, is less good a drug um, when it comes uh, to side effect profiles, and you get a lot more sleepiness on the phenobarb front. But 
but actually it's a better drug to treat neonatal seizures and and their bottom line after a great deal of thought about it is that phenobarbitone should continue as the first line treatment for neonatal seizures our second case leaps immensely far away from the land of neonatology and into the land of actual orthopaedics. This one comes from Ricky Holden from East and North Hertfordshire Trust in Stevenage and asks the question that that I'm sure many of us will have had. In uh, in children with Kohler's disease, does immobilisation, compared with no immobilisation, influence recovery time or affect long-term function and the radiographic findings? Now, Kohler's disease, as I'm sure you don't need to remind uh, of, which is something I'd never even heard of, was described in 1908 as osteochondrosis of the tarsal navicular. Um, The diagnosis should be considered in children aged approximately two to nine years with pain that localises to the foot and tenderness in the tarsal navicular bone. And then you go on to confirm this with radiographic findings and have a look around and you don't get um, uh, any other explanation for this. Now, the, the way that people have managed it has been quite different over the years with some people saying, well, just just hold on and it'll fix itself in a little while and just sort of live with it, really. Uh, and others going, no, 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 let's do something about it. Let's, let's manage this situation actively. Let's put it in a cast for four to six weeks or so. Um, and and, and when you do that sort of thing, you know that by intervening in relatively small children, by immobilising them, you, you may really limit their enjoyment of life for that period of time. But you also might get problems and having had the cast in the first place. The search that went away looked for randomised trials, it looked for systematic reviews, and it pulled round a whole load of stuff over a 250 um, different things that might have been relevant uh, but actually only three were and unlike in neonatal seizures where we've got two trials of uh, 100 or more neonates here what we've got are three studies which are single center and their retrospective cohorts not to cast bad light upon our orthopedic colleagues but that certainly was the case in the past now though you go out there and you look at some of the pediatric orthopedic trials that are going on at the minute fully electronic consent outcomes being collected where they can from the medical record or direct from the patients asking really really interesting questions orthopedics is in a revolution of trials sadly Kohler's disease hasn't quite made it up the top of the list of things to be trialed about but with the studies that they've got where they were comparing those that had been given uh, casting versus given conservative management not casting just do what you can type of advice they found that i think slightly surprisingly to me the immobilization was actually of benefit and and that it tended to be those with a short cast rather than a really long leg cast that had the best and most patients will be asymptomatic and have normal radiographic findings and if you went into it biochemical findings in the long term regardless of the treatment modality so whilst there's a slight advantage to being cast even if the patient and the family choose not to you can reassure them that in the long term things will be okay 
So, I think this Archimedes demonstrates the very great breadth that you can use evidence-based medicine techniques for to improve your practice of child health, be that in neonates with seizures and drugs that are almost difficult to pronounce and you've had to learn to sing them along to diseases that you didn't know existed and orthopaedic surgeons starting to do trials to fix things or not fix things as is best for patients. This is the way that Archimedes takes on and if you've got clinical queries and questions please do email to check that they haven't been covered and get a bit of constructive editorial advice as you work towards getting your Archimedes out there. Not every Archimedes gets published, but every Archimedes is a useful thing for you to do to learn more. And we're all learning all the time anyway. We will see or speak to you next month. Thank you very much for listening.